All right, so last week, uh, Chase followed uh, the outline in terms of biblical proof that we will remember in heaven uh, things on earth. There are a couple things going on with that study, and one was just very simply methodology. We don't want to speculate. We don't want to stand here and just try to ruminate on what heaven will be like. Uh, that wouldn't be of any good. Um, we don't know if it's true. And for us, I want to know uh, what's really going to happen. I want to know what's really going to be in the heavenly world we're going to. And God actually has, it says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, that it has not entered the mind, uh, the natural mind, what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So there's some things that he's told us about the future world. Not everything, but he's told us a lot. And so we want to uh, root everything that we learn about heaven, uh, just like everything in the Christian life, in passages of Scripture. And a lot of that is we want to do a good job, um, you know, with the text. We want to exegete it well. We want to interpret it well. We don't want to just rip something out of context and all that, but we want to be able to understand it. So uh, from last week, we had come to the conclusion that we will, in fact, remember in heaven the things we did on earth. There's multiple biblical proofs of that, and you walk through that. Now, today, what we're going to do is talk about um, the transformation that needs to happen in us for us to be able to enjoy heaven, for us to be able to drink in all of the glory of God in heaven. We need to be transformed, and we're going to talk about that today. Uh, just in terms of theology, um, the big heading uh, over this would be the topic of glorification. Glorification. That's the finish line of our salvation. Uh, salvation comes to us in stages. None of us is done being saved yet. And so the Christian life begins at regeneration slash justification. That's the start of it. At the moment that we believe the gospel, we are justified by faith, not by works. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We are given perfect righteousness, and in that righteousness, we'll spend all eternity. In that righteousness, we live the rest of our lives. It's not by works, but by faith in Christ. Jesus has done the works. It is by works, just not our works. Jesus has done the works, and then the righteousness is imputed to us forever. And in that righteousness, we'll live. In that righteousness, we will die. In that righteousness, we'll stand before God on judgment day and not be condemned and spend eternity in heaven. That's justification. But then, stage two, sanctification, where you're working out your salvation, you're studying scripture, you're finding indwelling sin. At least, you should be. <laughs> you should see and identify things in your life that are not Christ-like, things in your life that are not conformed to the perfection of Scripture, and you put those sins to death by the Spirit. That's why you come to church. That's why you come to Bible study. That's why you listen to sermons. That's why you have a quiet time, in part, all of those things, so that you can mortify the deeds of the flesh. You can mortify sin and grow in Christ-likeness. And in that, you'll be the rest of your life. You'll never get there. You'll never be perfect in this world, but you strive for it every day. That's sanctification. The final stage of our salvation is glorification, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Glorification is an instantaneous transformation of the redeemed into total conformity uh, in Christ. Uh, at that point, the struggle is over, the journey is over, we will be completely conformed to Christ. Glorification comes to us in two stages, unless we're the final generation. All right, uh, the first stage happens when you die. At the moment of death, the spirit of the Christian is separated from the physical body, and the physical body is cast into corruption. It's buried, and it decays. Um, the uh, soul or spirit uh, is instantaneously transformed and uh, is then in the presence of God and is absent from the body but present with the Lord, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. Or in Hebrews 12, it speaks of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. 
so having been perfected. But they are not done being glorified because the finish line of glorification is the resurrection of the body. And the resurrection of the body is the end, end line, the finish line of our salvation. When the redeemed receive the gift of the resurrection body, uh, then they will do be done being saved. So all of the departed in the Lord, they're not done being saved yet, though they are perfected spirits, they are not finished yet, they're still waiting. And it says in the book of Hebrews, only together with us would they be made perfect. So all of us get it together. There is one person and only one person with a resurrection body right now, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has it as the first fruit, and the rest of the harvest comes later. He has it as the first fruit so that in everything he might have the preeminence so that he has a resurrection body and no one else does. In, in conformity to Christ, our resurrection is coming. So that's what we're talking about. That's the future, glorification. Now, all those FIC words, justification, sanctification, glorification, are Latin words meaning to make. So to make righteous, that's justification. To make holy, that's sanctification. And then to make glorious. That's the final act of our salvation. And none of this is in the handout, the 16-page handout that I gave you. So we are in deep trouble. But I want to give you just a theological overview of what we're talking about. We're talking about the finish line of your salvation. Any questions about that before we dig in? Okay, so that's where we're heading. All right. In June of 1734, Jonathan Edwards began a sermon with these words. It is the manner of God, before he bestows any signal mercy on the people, first to prepare them for it. So he was talking there about revival, okay? And the revival, which later became known as the, as the uh, Great Awakening, started in a small town in, in Massachusetts, Northampton. And what he was saying is, if God is going to be merciful to a people, he gets them ready ahead of time. He does things in their lives ahead of time. So uh, as we think about that, it is true that to get a people ready for revival is necessary, and then he brings them to revival but it's even more true of heaven. We cannot receive the, the, the glories of heaven if we're not prepared for it. God has to get us ready uh, for the glory. Our hearts and our minds are not yet ready for the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, for us, one of the important things is we have to be ready for heaven itself. We have to actually, and part of the purpose of this is also Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, is to get us to want heaven, that we should actually desire heaven. So I was just teaching this material to IMB missionaries last week in, in Amsterdam, and, or near Amsterdam, and a woman came up afterwards and said, I just want to thank you very much for teaching me this, because honestly, for most of my life, I've somewhat dreaded heaven. Now, that's kind of an interesting statement. Why would you dread heaven? But Randy Alcorn, as he was writing his book, Heaven, found many people who actually had negative views of heaven, because they perceive heaven in a certain way that I think is unbiblical. So John Eldridge, uh, Randy Alcorn quotes um, concerning this negative view of heaven, uh, said this, Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. Okay? So some of you are like, great. Others are like, okay, um, you know, whatever. An unending singing of hymns. Like, you know, forever we'll be singing any of your favorites. Like, um, you know, make a suggestion to the song leader and they'll work it in there. There's plenty of time. That kind of thing. Um, to return to the quote, we have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. That's what I get at the end of my life. Wow. And then we sigh and feel more guilty that we're not more spiritual. I mean, I kind of like hymns, I mean, songs and stuff, but 
Not that much, you know, if that's all we're going to do. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. So he mentioned the Gary Larson uh, Farside cartoon. I actually tracked it down. It's amazing what you can do on the internet. And there it is. So here's this guy, I guess, Clarence the Angel. With, uh, he got his wings. So he's up there sitting on his own personal cloud, enjoying his time. Um, and he's like, all right, yeah, wished I'd brought a magazine. So I got to tell you personal stories. I flew across from Europe back to the States a couple of days ago. Uh, they have in-flight entertainment. I have to be honest, I kind of depend on it at this point. I don't have a lot of books with me. I have a magazine, whatever, but there's documentaries, all kind of thing, or I can sleep if you want. Problem was, um, the jack, the jack for the audio was jammed with some piece of metal. Eight and a half hour flight. So I'm like, okay, the Lord wants me to pray. Okay, that's what I'm going to spend my time. And I did. I spent a lot of time praying. I really did. Um, but that's, you know, that took up X amount of time, and there was still more. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, Christy said, why don't you tell the flight attendant? There's no flight attendant I know in the world that's going to be able to solve that mechanical engineering problem. They're not going to say, get up, all right, everybody clear out, I'm going to look down and see what I can, like, that's just not going to happen. So, um, I actually ended up watching some movies with no sound at all, so there was no, no music, no whatever. None of them had subtitles, they were just like, so I actually watched movies I knew. You know, like I watched The Longest Day, which is about D-Day. And it's like, I've seen it a couple times, so I actually could read their lips and know what they were saying. So <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about this. Anyway, uh, just the, the long time. And it's like, is this really what we're doing forever and ever? Huckleberry Finn, uh, Miss Watson. This is Huck, Huck Finn talking. Miss Watson, who's a Christian kind of spinster in the story, went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would ha have to do there uh, was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. <laughs> if you know Huck Finn, that's a great statement. It's like, yeah, no thanks. Um, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. <laughs> well, I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Well, I couldn't see no advantage in going where she was going, so I made up my mind I wouldn't try for it. So at the root of all that is that heaven really isn't attractive. Now, for us as Christians, we've, we believe in Jesus and all that, but to what end? The end, we would say, is in, in, that we would go to heaven when we die. That, but if we're not actually attracted to it, if we're not actually looking forward to it, then that actually, I think, will put, cast a pall somewhat in our lives. And even if we haven't thought it through, um, I think there's infinite benefit to thinking it through, to, to actually studying scriptures that tell you how wonderful it's going to be to be in heaven. I think it's really all of these things is really from Satan that he would make us somewhat like the, the picture that we have of Satan, you know, this red creature with a, with a pitchfork and all that. It's like, that's not true. And so it, it, it's to his end to give us that image that's a lie. And I think the same thing with heaven, that he wants to put in us an image of eternal boredom, frankly, of a static place that is not going to be very appealing at all. Now, as we're sitting in this class, and I'm basically saying to you that at least a portion of your eternity will be spent studying history, it would be easy for you to say, huh, <laughs> is really, is that what we're going to do? And so I do think it is, but it's not going to be um, boring. We need to actually focus on um, the transformation that will happen and what it means to drink in the glory of God. We need a transformation, and that transformation will equip us to enjoy the revelation of God's glory that will be the center of our joy and experience in heaven. Now, a couple of years ago, August 21st, coming up on, you know, exactly two years ago, 
There was a total eclipse of the sun that uh, the center uh, went through uh, South Carolina. You guys remember that, don't you? And we were told that we couldn't look directly at the sun. So Andy Wynn, typical of him, had the foresight to get some NASA glasses uh, ahead of time. So he's the only one that had them, but also typical of him, he was glad to share. So we went up at the key time up on the roof here at the church, um, right over there. And uh, at the moment it came, then we were able to look through the glasses. Now, I snuck a look thinking, oh, I look at the sun from time to time. I actually remember as I snuck the look that I don't. <laughs> um, it's, it's overwhelmingly bright. And that was at 5% of its normal strength. 5% it actually didn't look much different than a normal day. So that means you could reduce the sunlight by 95% of its brightness. You know, actually clouds do a better job than the eclipse, the, the almost total eclipse. Does. You know what I'm saying, a really cloudy day, it's almost like nighttime. Uh, so the clouds are just better at blocking the sunlight. So, all right, well here's a thought that, that hit me. Um, the sun is a creature and God is the creator. God is more glorious than the sun. Could someone read for us Revelation 21, 23 and 24? All right, so we've been saying as we began this study that the, the essence of our heavenly experience is the glory of God. That's, that's it. That's what we get in, in heaven. And the glory of God is the radiant display of his attributes, his perfections. Um, but here it's directly linked toward light, actual physical light. So the light by which we will live in the New Jerusalem will be directly the glory of God. And that in, a, in an amazing way, he doesn't delegate that to a creature like the sun or the moon or the stars or to human ingenuity like the light of a lamp. Uh, those things are not needed in the New Jerusalem. It will just be the glory of God. But think about the sun. The sun is a, a raging inferno 93 million miles away surface of the sun, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, they tell us. I don't know how the physicists know that. I can guarantee no probe has ever landed to tell us what it actually is. Closest any NASA probe has ever gotten is something like 4 million miles away. They can't get any closer than 4 million miles to the sun. Just ignites. We have no materials that can handle that, that level of heat. So uh, the, the theoreticists tell us that the center of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know how they know that, but physicists work all that out. It's incredible. But God, we're told, dwells in unapproachable light. Like the sun exists in unapproachable heat. There's an ancient Greek myth, Icarus, an arrogant human being, wanted to escape his imprisonment on Crete, and he built wings with wax and feathers. And ignoring his father's warning, he flew too close to the sun, and the wax melted, and the Icarus plummeted to his death. So that's just a, a, a sense of the, of the brightness and the heat of the sun. And the sun is, as I said, a creature. Um, when Paul was converted, uh, this is the testimony he gave. Uh, there are three accounts of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts. When you think about that, um, it's very important. It's one of the great moments in church history. When Saul of Tarsus, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, was instantaneously made into a Christian. It's incredible that God has that sovereign grace and that kind of power. The third time, though, he gives some additional details. Um, in Acts 26, uh, he says this, About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. So in other words, God can do light better than the sun can. So any glory of God that's ever emanated, like the Mount of Transfiguration, whatever, is, to, is a great reduction of what God can do. 
He can do far more than the sun. He can do far more brightness than we can possibly handle. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 24, 23 says poetically, the, sun will be the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. That's actually a precursor to the very thing we read in Revelation 21. The sun and the moon won't have their job anymore. They'll get fired. <laughs> okay. Uh, God will, you know, what he delegated to the sun, the moon, and the stars on the fourth day of creation, you know, God had already done let there be light, and there was already light, but he then gave the job to the sun, the moon, and the stars, uh, and then eventually to human ingenuity, fire, generally fire until electrical light came along, but, you know, et cetera, that's, that was light. That's what, what we use for light. Um, but he takes that back in heaven, and he will reign gloriously in the New Jerusalem. That's what it says. Again, Hebrews 20, 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. The question is, how can we dwell with him? How can we look at him? That's, that's what I'm meditating on with you guys. How can we be with such a God? Isaiah 33, 14 and 15 says, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? How can we live with such a God? He who walks righteously and speaks what's right can, but we don't walk righteously and speak what is right. Our tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You know, every single day we sin. So how can we possibly be in the presence of such a holy God? Now, we know the answer to that. We've already covered it as justification, imputed righteousness of Christ, but still the issue's there. Even for us who are righteous in Jesus by faith, how can we be with such a glorious being? As we've already mentioned, 1 Timothy 6 speaks of God's unapproachable light. Someone, if you would, read that for us. 1 Timothy 6. Well, clearly, that, that's just a summation of a description of God. And those words are awesome. It's like a benediction that Paul gives us there in 1 Timothy 6. But it tells us that he dwells in unapproachable light. Um, we get the same image, of course, in Exodus 33, where uh, Moses is with God on Mount Sinai, and at a certain point, Moses says this, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But I will, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me just stop and make a comment about that statement. This is the very thing that's asserted about God's sovereignty and salvation in Romans 9. This is the verse that's quoted. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What's interesting is here it's in the context of show me your glory. So if you put the two together, our salvation is ultimately a quest for us as sinners to see the glory of God. And God says, I'll give it to you if I have compassion on you and mercy on you. That's really, if you put all together, that's what he's saying. To those I choose and to those I save, I will have mercy and I will have compassion and I will show you myself. That's what heaven's all about. But I, just putting that together, that's quoted by Paul in Romans 9. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. In other words, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy. If I'm going to have mercy on you, I'll have mercy on you. If I will not have mercy on you, I will not. But no one can demand my mercy. It's not a matter here of justice. It's a matter of mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If I choose to have compassion on you, I will have compassion on you. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 9. What he's saying here, he's dealing with Moses there in Exodus 33. And he says this, But... You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So what does that say to you when he says, no one may see me and live? What do you learn about that? It's very powerful. We're not ready yet. Okay. Why do you say it that way? That's interesting. 
Right. So very next thing in your handout. Isn't that cool? We will see his face. That is awesome. So we will see it. But we're, I love Dave, what you said. We're not ready yet. Anyone else, when he says, you cannot see me, for no one can see me and live. What, what image of God do you get out of that? Holiness. Okay, the holiness of God. Power. Just overwhelming power. It's very humbling. I mean, we are so arrogant. We're like Icarus. We're like, oh, we'll go as high as we want. And, and it's like, no, you are not going to go into the presence of God. We'll be destroyed if God does not show us mercy. And so he says that. Uh, then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. So God shows Moses a diminished portion of his glory. And so it was also on the Mount of Transfiguration, as Jesus so showed to Peter, James, and John, a diminished portion of his glory, but greatly increased from what Jesus was showing to everyone else. So everyone else, as some have said, um, you know, he was God incognito or God in disguise. You didn't see the full glory of God in Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was very ordinary looking. And so if you looked at him and then he's claiming to be God, it seemed blasphemous because you would imagine a, a radiant, glorious being. Well, that glory was taken away, and he looked just like a normal human being. But then on the Mount of Transfiguration, he increased it just a little bit. You can't even imagine the full range of the dimmer switch, okay? So we went up a couple of clicks, that's all. And so his face became radiant like the sun, his clothes were as white, whiter than any launderer could make them, and a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. So you got all this brightness, and, and the disciples, what did they do? Peter, James, and John, what, what was their reaction to this? They wanted they did, but what were they doing? They're on the ground. No, they're on the ground. They're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. They're filled with terror. And so fundamentally, as Dave pointed out, Revelation 22, 3 and 4 says very plainly, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. So there must be a radical transformation in us to be able to see the face of God, and that is glorification. The essence of glorification is certainly that we would be made glorious, but even better than that, that we would be able to see glory as it really is, that we'd be able to drink it in and be able to appreciate it and to see it for what it really is, the glory of God. Also, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, because it speaks of a time of need. So we don't really, we're not needy in heaven. So it's now, the point is bring your need and approach. So what's your thought? Confidence. With confidence, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But we can't see him. You know, we don't see him. And actually, First Peter says, though, speaking of Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. So it's the eyesight of the soul, faith. By faith we see. And so right now, as you see, um, Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So there's multiple verses that speak, uh, speak of this. But 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Or through a glass darkly is the KJV uh, translation. So we see indistinctly. Again, that gives you a sense of a great reduction in glory. We have much more glory of the mind uh, here, the glory of the concept the glory of God in the cross, as you read about it and understand the theology of the cross. There's glory that comes into your heart, but it's not a bright, shining light, physical light. It's just concepts coming from the text 
that you believe by faith and then your heart is filled with joy or certain feelings. But that's what it means to see through a glass darkly. Friends, it fundamentally is about spiritual gifts and the teaching of the word. Okay? In, in 1 Corinthians 13, if I can just set it in context, and someday, maybe we as a church will get there. We're in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 9 toward the end. I've not forgotten where we are. But we've got a journey to get to, to get to chapter 13. But if you understand the context of what's going on, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is all about spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of tongues and prophecy. And 1 Corinthians 13 is set right in the middle of that meditation on spiritual gifts, and he talks about spiritual gifts and pride and arrogance and the way that the Corinthians were misusing their gifts and boasting about their gifts and, you know, uh, et cetera. And he wants the gifts to function properly with a heart of love. So he uses all this gift language. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have not love, I'm a, you know, a clanging gong or a tinkling cymbal, something like that. And then he says, if I, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, he's ruminating on spiritual gifts. As he goes through that, he says, what's really important is love. The gifts are meant to serve love. They're an expression of love, and we're building each other up by means of these spiritual gifts. But honestly, all of the gifts are like talking like baby talk. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I talked like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. He's talking about going to heaven. Now we see through a glass darkly. Then, then when? In heaven. Then we will see face to face. So what he's saying is, Good Bible preaching and teaching is seeing through a glass darkly. Reading the Bible is seeing through a glass darkly. Meditating on texts of Scripture, memorizing them, and doing good exegesis on them, rightly dividing the word of truth, all of that's necessary, all of it's seeing through a glass darkly. Someday you'll see face to face. You'll be taught directly by God himself with no more interpretation or no more wrangling or rational processes. Just there it is. That's the way I understand it. So now you've had my sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. So we'll do it again in some months. Go ahead, Craig. I guess. I, I mean, there's a limitation to what I can do. All I can do is I look at these words and I see Revelation 22.4 says, they will see his face. So I just have to believe that that will happen. And, and it's not like John doesn't know the significance of that assertion. He knows very well how huge that is. This is the last chapter of the Bible. This is us in, at the finish line. This is us up in heaven. And the center of everything is they will see God. But I guess to some degree it might have to do with Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in some way, um, you know, keep in mind, God the Father never has been and never will be human. He's not incarnate by the Virgin Mary. God the Father was never that way. So I don't know, Craig, how to answer your question. You'll see God and Jesus and the Spirit. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to think Trinitarianly about seeing God. Maybe we'll see the perfection of Jesus' revelation of the Father. I don't know. I'm at the edge of, my, edge of my knowledge. It is cool. Go home and think about it. All right? But don't be a heretic, whatever you do. All right? Don't go too far in your speculations. Just say there's, only, there's some things we just can't know. But there, there's just something. I just made a bunch of strong assertions to you. Like, God the Father has never been human. We are in the image of God. He's not in our image. He is not human. We are in his image. He was never incarnate by the Virgin Mary. How do I know all this? The Bible. Okay, so what does that mean? That will I be able to see God? It says I'll see God. So I just believe I'll see him. I'll see his face, face to face. 1 Corinthians 13 says face to face. So there's some enhanced experience of God. But you're right, and it's foundational to my understanding of a dynamic heaven. 
is we'll, we'll always be finite beings. We'll never get to a point in heaven, not when we've been there 10,000 years. We will not be able to say, I've got it. I've got God now. What do I do now? I've got the rest of eternity and there's nothing new to learn. That will never happen to you. There's always more of God. Or you will become God and you won't. Go ahead, Jay. I'm not trying to do that. And I think you're right that Jesus is the perfect revelation of the glory of God. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, I don't think we'll see like three persons, three humans sitting in side by side by side chairs. You know, that seems like Mormon to me. You know, I, I just don't think that's us. But I'm just saying all of you brothers and sisters, we're at the limit of our ability to understand the Trinity. That's okay. It's just be limited. You know, we are limited. And, we, and one of the insights I've had is heaven, in, about heaven is we'll be instantaneously glorified, but we'll never be God. We'll always be limited. You will be limited in heaven or you will be God. Those are the options. And because you'll never be God, you'll always be limited. And because you'll be limited, there'll be always more that God can show you. And that makes heaven pretty exciting. No sitting on a cloud, no sitting on a cloud with a tear wishing you had a magazine. That's not happening. I'm sorry, Dave, what were you saying? We will not be disappointed. Okay. So again, First John 3, 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. So now, again, uh, to Jay's point, we will definitely see Jesus. Every, every you know, uh, healthy Christian believes that. We're going to, no doubt about that. But 1 John 3, 2 says, yeah, but you're going to see him as he really is. There's no God incognito anymore. You will see the glory of Jesus fully. And what we get there is to be able to see him and not die. We will never die. So we'll be able to handle it. Okay. So the question before us then is, how can the servants of God in heaven survive what no man on earth could survive? What kind of transformation must occur to enable the redeemed to survive and even delight in the full revelation of the glory of God that will illuminate the new Jerusalem? All of our senses in this present age can get overwhelmed. Okay? Light can be too bright. Sound can be too loud. And in those cases, we say the light was blinding and the sound was deafening. And yet our resurrection bodies will have perfected capabilities infinitely far from blindness and deafness. How can this be? How can we dwell in an overwhelming place with continually overwhelming revelations of the glory of God and survive and actually thrive and find it pleasurable? Actually, we'll enjoy it. I mean, I did not find it pleasurable to sneak a glimpse at the eclipse. It was instantly not pleasurable. All right? I immediately had the good sense to look away. God's brighter than the sun. How will it be pleasurable to look directly at his face? That's the thing in front of us. And ultimately, I have to say, I don't really know, but I just think we'll have increased capabilities, the ability. Um, so the answer to that question is the task of this lesson. So you may be wondering, all right, when are we going to start the lesson? I'm trying. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right, 1 Corinthians 15 says, I tell you this, uh, brothers, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So let me just stop and say, you must have an upgrade. You can't go to heaven as you are. It's not just as I am. Okay, certainly just as I am at justification, sure. I come into initial faith in Christ, yes, just as you are. But you can't go to heaven like this. That's what it means when it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet. Okay, that's glorification. Instantaneous transformation. M made ready to, uh, to put Paul's language here, inherit the kingdom of God. So that we can inherit the kingdom of God. To come into our inheritance, we must be changed. All right, that's glorification. 
Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. Someone read that for us, please. Okay, so I began this lesson today with just, uh, you know, going back again over salvation. And when I say to you that salvation comes in stages, it's right here, friends. It's right here in the text. We don't get our salvation all at once. It's this, then this, then this. Now in this, clearly with the doctrine of predestination or election, everyone that begins finishes. Everyone. Nobody, nobody gets dropped off along the way. I mean, every single person that God predestines, he calls, he justifies, and then glorifies. Interesting, I want you to note, there is a stage that we talk about all the time that's not mentioned in this list, and that is sanctification. I find it interesting that it goes from justification to glorification. I believe that sanctification truly is a subset of glorification, but it's not instantaneous. That's why I think that he skips it. It's not like he doesn't, doesn't know about it. He wrote in 2 Corinthians that we go from glory to glory. So you're already glorious. The more you put sin to death, the more glorious you'll be. That's all. That's just a thought. That's an aside. Let's keep moving. I've got to watch out for these asides because we're already in trouble. Let's keep going. Massive strengthening required. All right. The word glory, the Hebrew word for glory, um, is related to the word for mass or massiveness. There's a sense of heaviness to God. He is a heavy thing. Um, it's, you know, we, we could use that expression even. That's heavy thought. That's, it's a heavy, well, God's heavier than you can imagine. There's a lot there. He's a massive being. So the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, um, has to do with weight. Now, the sun, we're told, contains 99.8% of the mass of the solar system. So the sun is a, is a mass hog, all right? Uh, so that includes Jupiter, Saturn, all of them. All of them added together make up 0.2% of the mass of the solar system. It's basically all in the sun. And I don't understand physics to that level, but that mass is somehow related to the uh, planets orbiting the sun. The, the massiveness of the sun keeps them in orbit. No other, no other thing is massive enough to hold all of that in proper order. So the sun does that. So the sun is not only overwhelmingly bright, it's overwhelmingly heavy and it holds everything together. Now, if you think then about that also as a revelation of God, God is a heavy being. He is a glorious being. He is massive. So um, the earth, for example, is about one three millionths as massive as the sun. We are lightweight, okay? Just put it that way. We are lightweights. And Isaiah the prophet says this very plainly in Isaiah 40 and verse 15. It says, Behold, the nations, the nations are as a drop from the bucket and as dust on the scales. What is that saying about the nations? If you could put that in your own words, what is he saying? We're insignificant. Compared to God, we're as nothing. If we took all of our combined wickedness and force and together sought to fight God, what would happen? We'd get laughed at as in Psalm 2. It's like, do you have any idea? First of all, we have no independent being from God anyway. He can just decide to pull the plug on your existence anytime he chooses. And that includes Satan and the demons. So in him we live and move and have our being. If he just says you don't live and move and have being anymore, guess what? You don't. But even if he gave you your power that he's entrusted you and we combined it, it would be as nothing. And I've thought about this in terms of the sun. If the human race wanted to fight the sun, I mean the literal sun, what would we do to send a weapon to blow the sun up. Well, we'd be like, hey, we can do thermonuclear warheads. Do you know how the sun would laugh at our little thermonuclear? It's like, I do this for a living. I mean, this is what I do. And again, you wouldn't get closer than four million miles anyway. So, so much for that. You can't do a thing to the sun. You can't make it brighter or dimmer. You can't make it nearer or closer. You can't make it heavier or lighter. You can do nothing. The sun is the sun. God is God. And the sun's a creature. 
So God is massive, absolutely massive. So God wants to deliver some of himself to you. He wants to take some of that massive, brilliant aspect of himself and deliver it to you. You have to be transformed to receive the shipment, if you know what I'm saying. There is some heaviness that he wants to lay on you. I have an illustration here about the gold reserve in uh, uh, Federal Reserve Bank in Manhattan. I'm not going to take the time to go through it, but anyway, they have a lot of gold. Um, lots, lots and lots and lots. But imagine they wanted to deliver a shipment of a thousand bars of gold to your living room. Okay? Let's imagine for a moment you have a basement, all right? You're not on a slab. All right, so, Randy, what do you think? I mean, 1,000 bars of gold, what? It's not going to hold up very well, all right? <laughs> How about 2,000 bars? 5,000 bars? All right, what's going to happen? It will collapse. So, therefore, there is remarkably a strengthening language that comes in Scripture to receive more of God. There, there ha you have to be strengthened to receive a shipment of God. And the clearest example of this is in Ephesians 3, 17 to 19. I love these. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's one of the greatest prayers Paul ever prayed. He says this in Ephesians 3. All right, so what Paul says there, thank you. That's powerful, isn't it? Um, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So I should have included that in the quote. That's in verse 16. Strengthened with power in your inner being for the delivery of a sense of the magnitude of how much God loves you in Christ. The dimensions, how wide and long and high and deep, the infinite dimensions of his love for you. You, all of you, and I do too, underestimate it. You don't have any sense of how much God loves you in Christ like what it cost God to save you by sending his only begotten son who he loves. You underestimate what that was. It's like, yeah, Jesus died for me. It's like, no, bigger, deeper, deeper. That you would have a sense together with all the saints of the dimensions. Well, but he uses strengthening language. That you would be strengthened in your inner being to handle that. Well, why this strengthening language? Because it's overwhelming. If you look at the end, uh, of what he says, so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that mean? That you'd be filled with how full God is. That God would just keep pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring himself into you until you realize just how full God is. Do you not see then that idea of uh, getting shipments of gold bars, each weighing 28 pounds, and they're planting 7,000 bars? You better have some civil engineers and architects and all kinds of stuff, or it's going to collapse. Well, your being cannot handle the shipment as it is. That's what I'm saying. You have to be strengthened to receive what God is going to give you for all eternity. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, right at the beginning, says this, not the literal beginning, but toward the beginning, it says this. Hence that dread and wonder with which Scripture commonly represents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. Thus it comes about that we see men who in his absence normally remain firm and constant, but who when he manifests his glory are so shaken and struck dumb as to be laid low by the dread of death are in fact overwhelmed by it and almost annihilated. 
There are actually many examples of this in Scripture. I've cited a few of them. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember when the fire came down from heaven and burned up everything? It was gone. The altar, the stones, everything's gone. How do the people react? Do they say, wow, that's something? No. What did they do? They're all of them on their faces, and they're saying, the Lord, he is God. Well, what are you going to say? And then I already talked about Peter, James, and John. When the bright cloud enveloped them, they were on their face, all of them, before, before God. I mean, God can do this. He can show up in, in, in such a way that you are just straight out overwhelmed. The clearest kind of unfolding of this reaction comes in Daniel chapter 10. And there, an angel, some people think it's the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not going to go there. I actually think he's just a, a messenger angel. And he's going to bring the message of, of Daniel 11, which is the future of the Jews and what's going to happen under the reign of the Greeks and the foretaste of the Antichrist, and then words right out to the end, to the resurrection, chapter 12. That's what Daniel 11 and 12 was all about. Daniel 10 is the angel who comes to tell him all that. And look what happens when he has this ex ex an encounter with the angel. I looked, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Later in that same account, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then the man who looked like, then the one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. So let me just pause there and say, well, how do you think you're going to go through a single day in heaven? Seeing God. If this is just an angel, what, what do you think you'll be like without strengthening? So look what the angel does. It's really interesting. Verse 18, again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Verse 19, do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed. He said, peace, be strong now, be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened, and I said, speak, Lord, since you have now given me strength. Now he's fine. So how much more than glorification, where he doesn't just touch you and give you a little strength, he just strengthens you for glory so that you can receive the shipment, an eternal shipment of God's glory and be able to handle it. That's what we're talking about here. So this is a remarkable reaction here. You'd be much worse than this if you weren't strengthened in glorification. Jonathan Edwards had some foretaste of heaven, so did his wife Sarah. And some of these ecstatic experiences are remarkable. This is what Edwards, how he described that experience. To be emptied and annihilated to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone. That's what he felt like when he had that experience. It was, it was a prayer time. And then God just opened up heaven to some degree and poured himself in at a greater measure than he'd ever experienced before. He had a vision of Christ, and he was like this, just annihilated, emptied and annihilated. And then his, his wife, uh, she describes a night of pure pleasure as though she were a dust speck floating in a beam of sunlight with the love of Christ flowing and reflowing of what she said. It seemed to be all that my feeble frame could sustain of that fullness of joy which is felt by those who behold the face of Christ and share his love in the heavenly world. So again, she's feeling overwhelmed. She's like, I know I can't handle anymore. This is the limit. 
She said, every moment, if I could put it in words, it'd be like all the pleasure I've ever had any other time in my life, all put together into a single instant and multiplied by a thousand. I just, and what she's saying is, I couldn't handle anymore. This was the limit. And then D.L. Moody, same thing. He had that sacred experience of the love of God. God poured directly into his soul. It was so overwhelming, he said, I had to ask him to stay his hand. So in other words, I can't, that's it. There's no more. Well, heaven, there's no staying of God's hand. He's not going to stay his hand. He's just going to pour it on. <laughs> He's going to pour brightness and heaviness on you. And in order for that, you must be transformed. You must be prepared to see glory. So the Lord knows our frame and his massive glory. So go into the frame language, Randy. Okay. The Lord knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Frame is the interior structure. We are weak. We cannot handle the truth. Jesus said in John 16, 12, I have much to say to you more than you can now bear. Isn't that strong? I mean, he's just like, you can't handle it. So there's a limit to what you can handle. Well, if these people needed strengthening to see some of God's glory, then how much more will we need strengthening to see all of it over a period of eternity? So what is the preparation? The redeemed will see an endless stream of glory, comprehend it, and delight in it. First of all, the redeemed will themselves be glorious. We've already talked about that. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You will be bright. You'll be bright to look at. Okay? C.S. Lewis, in his uh, sermon, The Weight of Glory, said, I never really thought much about being an eternal living light bulb. Um, that's how he put it. All right, but you will be radiant. Wasn't Moses' face shining after he had that brief encounter with God? You'll be more. As a matter of fact, you'll be so radiant that if you had that radiance now about you and anyone else here didn't have it and saw it, they would be tempted to fall down and worship you. That's what happened with the angel who brought John the book of Revelation. What did John want to do with that angel? Worship him. And he said, don't do it. Get up. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. Remember that? That's the apostle John at the end of his life. He had to be warned, don't worship me. I'm a creature. So in heaven, we will, you know, angels and humans, the redeemed, will be glorious, bright and shining, glorious. All right, so let's talk about the resurrection body. Let's start there. Uh, would someone please read for us 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44? We have about 10 minutes. Let's use it. All right, so we have four couplets, four pairs, contrast. It's sown, it's raised, it's sown, it's raised, it's sown, it's raised. So you get a sense of what we are or will be at death now in this world and what we will be in the next world in our resurrection body. So you have these contrasts from perishable to imperishable. So what does perishable mean? able to rot, able to decay, able to die, all right? So if you are asked at the border if you have any perishables, that means things that grew, that are, that were, are alive, like, you know, uh, fruits, vegetables, things like that. So those are perishables, okay? Um, your body is perishable. It's called the body of death. It's decaying constantly. It's dying from the moment you're born, all right? So, you know, from that moment on, cells are dying and being replenished, and at some point, they don't get replenished very well. I don't know that much about aging, but it just gets worse and worse and worse, and then you, you die. It's perishable. It is raised imperishable. Your body in heaven cannot die. It cannot age. It cannot decay. That's the resurrection body. Secondly, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. However much we may seek to do at a funeral to honor the dead, there's something essentially dishonorable about dying. And you know what I mean, if you go to a nursing home, you go to a hospital, you see what death does to people, you see what it does to their bodies, how some people radically change over the last two months of their lives until you almost can't recognize them sometimes. It is very dishonorable to die. 
and it's just part of being human. It's part of being sons and daughters of Adam. We are under the death penalty. All right, it's appointed to us to die, and it's dishonorable, and there's no hiding it. But the body that is raised, it is raised in glory. It is a glorious body. So there is an honor in the body. There is a glory in the body. You are raised glorious. All right? Third couplet. It is sown in weakness. Okay? There is an essential weakness to death and disease and dying. And it's just a weak thing to die. But your body that is raised will be powerful. It will not be weak. I love thinking about this. Uh, you know, I ride, I ride my bike for exercise. It's a road bike with thin tires and all that. I often fantasize about what it would be like to enter the Tour de France and I'm the only one with a resurrection body and no one else has one. <laughs> and I'm going up the Pyrenees and I'm going up, the, I'm going up like I'm going downhill. I might circle back and come back from the top of the mountain and <laughs> encourage people. How you doing? Boy, what in the view? Great. I love it here. Zip back up the mountain. I will definitely be tested for drugs. No doubt about it. They'll be testing me. They don't know what to make of me. I have zero fatigue. None. So you think about Isaiah 40 where it says, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So I think of that in terms of resurrection body. I don't think in terms of Superman able to leap tall buildings at a single bound and able to stop a speeding bullet or any of that stuff. I don't think that way. I just think we never get tired. Never. So that's pretty awesome. And then finally, the most mysterious of all, it is sown a natural body is raised, the greatest paradox of all, a spiritual body. Now what do you make of that? You get some indications of the weirdness of it by Jesus' physical behavior as he passes through the wall of the cave where he's buried and the upper room, though the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, where he's eating bread with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then just disappears. He's gone. So there's just something different going on with Jesus' body. And what it is, I don't know, but it's just a spiritual body. So that's what you're going to get physically. All right? Our resurrection bodies then will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. All right, so that is what you need. Eternity is a long time. There's a long quote here. I, I use it in my book on contentment, and I'm not going to read it. But fundamentally... It's just a long, 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 long time. Longer than you can possibly imagine. So you will need a resurrection body or else, friends, you just won't make it. Okay? So that's what it's all about. And beyond that, there's a vast new universe to explore, the new heaven, new earth. You'll need energy for that. You'll need good eyesight. You'll need, you know, your resurrection bodies. So there's lots to do. But I want to go beyond that to talk about your resurrected heart and mind as well. The transformation of the inner man. That's going to be every bit as important. So what does it mean? Well, our bodies right now are limited by corruption and sin. Our brains are, our minds. So I tell you this and insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So we have naturally, apart from grace, darkened minds. We are presently battling the residual darkness of our mind every day in sanctification. We're fighting dark thoughts. We're fighting dark tendencies in the inner being, all right? You will be completely delivered from that at death, and that's completely confirmed. The, those that are absent from the body, present with the Lord, are glorified in their minds and hearts. They never have dark thoughts. They think like Jesus. They have the mind of Christ. And they love what Jesus loves. They hate what Jesus hates. They are conformed to Christ mentally 
and spiritually. So that's, I think, intermediate state stuff, but it'll also be true of us in eternity. We will have perfectly enlightened minds. What that means is we will learn forever and we will not forget what we've learned. Think about that because forgetting is part of, it's part of corruption to forget. I mean, how many times does the scripture talk about forgetfulness as a sin? that you've forgotten all of the good works that God did for you, all of the way that he carried you as a father carries his son from, from the Red Sea until now. You've forgotten all of those good works that God did. Well, we won't forget in heaven. We'll remember and forever accumulate insights and knowledge. And we will react appropriately to what we're learning and, and, and proportionately. Not everything we'll learn will be equally glorious. Some of our brothers and sisters did more glorious things than others. And as we learn them, we will give appropriate honor and esteem given the level of glory, given the level of sacrifice, given the level of courage, the level of what God did in their lives. We'll be able to see it and understand it proportionally because our minds will be clear. We'll be able to put two and two together. More than that, that's sim simple. We'll be able to combine concepts that we're learning, almost like the periodic table combines to make chemicals. We'll be able to put these and these things together and say, wow, if that's true and that's true and these things are true, you put it all together, wow, what God did in that country to bring that, that, that country to faith in Christ or to bring elect in that country, um, you know, in missions or in this, the way he orchestrates aspects of human history. It's, it's overwhelming. And at some point, like now it would be circuit breaker. It was like too much. We just trip over. No, no. You'll be able to hang in there and get it. You'll be able to understand and track what God is doing and what he has done. All right. At present, our bodies, our minds are decaying. Alzheimer's, senility, various things mean that we forget things. All right. In heaven, there's none of that. There's, there's no ADD in heaven. Okay. There's no wandering minds. There's no boredom in heaven. There's no boredom in heaven. Do you think God is ever bored with things that he's made? No, he delights in them. Small or great, he loves them. And so it is for us. If some very average saint is telling you his or her very average story of how they came to Christ and then lived an average life for the Lord to the glory of God and then died, there will be a lot of those stories in heaven, friends, because there's a lot of people like that. You will not be bored. You will not say, whatever, or what does this have to do with me? By the way, to just be delivered from yourself at every moment will be one of the sweetest parts of heaven. You won't be worried about what it says about you because you're not the point. <laughs> at some point, you'll have a chance to share what God did in and through your life, and that will be glorious because God glorified himself through you, and that's a good thing. But you'll just be delivered from how much of that is coming through you. It doesn't matter. Why would it matter? Isn't it just as awesome if it comes through someone else? as God worked in that person. So our present hearts are, are twisted by corruption and sin, but God is going to deliver us. So I don't want to hurry through this. We'll talk more next week. So.